Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll discuss Israel's political crisis and ask, is the Israeli government actually going to fall apart because of patients who want to eat bread in Israeli hospitals during the holiday of Passover? But before that, we are going to Paris. On Sunday, the first round of elections in France ended with President Emmanuel Macron and far-right leader Marine Le Pen advancing to the second round that will take place on April 24. To understand what is at stake in these elections and what they will mean for the French Jewish community and perhaps also for Israel, we have two journalists with great expertise on these matters. Emmanuel Elbaz Phelps. Hello, Emmanuel. Hello. Who has been hosting recently a Hebrew language podcast for Haaretz on the elections in France. So for our Hebrew speaking listeners or those who want to practice their Hebrew and French at the same time, I strongly recommend Imanor's podcast, The Republic. It's called basically in Hebrew, A Republica. True, exactly. Um, so, so far, several great episodes and another one I think coming out tomorrow. Exactly, tomorrow and then two more to come. Okay, so a lot to expect. And Eleonore Vey, an editor on the Haaretz News Desk and a journalist who has written about French politics and actually wrote a fascinating story for us earlier this week on where the candidates stand in relation to Israel, Iran and the Middle East. One of our most read stories of the week so far. Strongly recommend li- uh, our listeners also if you want to learn more to search for it. Hi, Eleonore. Hi, Mia. Thank you for having me. So we are meeting here today at the Haaretz headquarters, um, 48 hours after the results came in. Emmanuel, what's your first takeaway from what we saw on Sunday night? The political landscape in France has completely changed. You've seen three parties that uh, one of them is not a very old party, it's actually a very young party, the one of Emmanuel Macron, the president, en marche. So you've seen Emmanuel Macron, Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon from the radical left taking together around 70% of the votes. It's crazy. The fourth candidate after them is Eric Zemmour, the far-right Jewish candidate, and he's only got 7%. So from 7% to 20%, you understand that uh, the landscape has completely changed, and the Republican and the Socialist Party, the classical parties in France that have produced presidents through the Fifth Republic, they do not exist anymore. Both of them, I think, even got less than the 5% that you need to have for uh, getting reimbursed for the campaign expenses, right? They have less than 5%. Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, she's the leader of the Socialist Party, so the party of François Mitterrand, François Hollande. She didn't get 2%. Wow. And Valérie Pécresse, the leader of the Republican Party, the conservative uh, right party of Charles de Gaulle, Jacques Chirac, Nicolas Sarkozy, she didn't reach the 5%. So as you said, they have to find the money to actually reimburse their own campaign right now. But this is the least of their problem, right? The money. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the money is one issue. And then the, the lack of voters, I think, is the more troubling. Uh, Eleanor, looking now ahead to the second round, in how much trouble do you think Macron is? I mean, after all, he did emerge as the winner on Sunday night, mm-hmm. but uh, all of the coverage around the world has emphasized that it's far from guaranteed for him. Exactly. I think what we're looking at is a change in the mood of the French voters in France. As uh, Emmanuel said, 53% of the French voters 
have backed a populist party. And I think that's something... You, you combine right-wing and left-wing populists yes. here, yes. you know, from Mélenchon to... From Mélenchon to Eric Zemmour to Marine Le Pen, obviously. And that gives us a very uh, strong indication that the mood of the French people have changed over the past five years. And why is so? You know, French people have always been grumpy. I think we all know that that's something that everyone knows and everyone says. So the stereotype of the tourist who goes to Paris and feels this is not completely detached from reality? This is what you're telling me? Completely. They She's are right. grumpy, but this uh, alleged grumpiness has turned into discontent, frustration and anger towards the traditional political class. As you said, Republican Party and um, the Socialist Party who used to be the two main parties in France have done less than, I don't know, less than, I think, 10% in the last runoff. And now Marine Le Pen, 24%, is possibly going to be the next French president. I've read an article this morning. They were saying that there's only 1% difference today between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. In some so, of the recent polling. Exactly. In the latest poll, 1%. So Macron is in big trouble And why is so? Uh, so a lot of French voters, as, as I said, have expressed anger towards his policy. And even before the, the first round, people have been saying that his campaign was completely flat and almost inexistent. He was more willing to play the mediator between Russia and Ukraine than to really relate to the French voters' issues. And that's something that really infuriated the French voters. This sounds a bit uh, like, uh, not that I'm comparing. Because you can uh, compare. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always <laughs> difficult to make comparisons on demo democracies uh, where you have such different uh, circumstances, but it does sound a bit like the troubles of our own Prime Minister mm -hmm. Bennett. Emmanuel, where does that anger come from? Is it mostly on economic issues? Is it related to immigration? Um, maybe other issues that are less present in the news coverage that we as Israelis see? Where does this great anger that Leonor just described come from? First and foremost, if we talk about the anger towards the president, there is a tradition in there. Since Jacques Chirac, no French president has been elected twice. I mean, Sarkozy tried and he wasn't. And Francois Hollande knew he didn't stand a chance, so he didn't try. So in a way, Macron is not trying to do something nobody has achieved in two decades. Exactly. He's trying to get elected for the second time. So it's almost a tradition for the French Uh, exactly as Eleanor said, not to be happy and satisfied with what they have. Because if you look objectively at the numbers, and Macron is trying to remind his uh, potential voters right now, if you look at Emmanuel Macron's results uh, for his first uh, mandate, um, he came with uh, numbers. The unemployment uh, rates are down, especially, in, uh, especially for the youngs. And um, he came out of the COVID crisis pretty well. I mean, no business in France actually closed and nobody stayed uh, without money to finish the month. But that's not enough for the French. They want more. And I think what they want is they want to be seen. We've seen the yellow vest mm -hmm. uh, in the streets in 2018. And these are people that feel that they do not exist for the system. They are not seen. They are transparent. They are non-existent. And those During the votes, they either didn't vote, either went probably with Mélenchon and also a bit with Marine Le Pen. So he's trying to talk to these people that feel that he's the president of the rich, he's disconnected, he's distant. And Marine Le Pen, when she said the night after the result that she will be the president of all French, she's actually saying, I'm going to be the president of all French. He's only the president of the rich. 
is there a geographical element to it Paris versus other parts of the country as we've seen in the US for example uh, and also to some degree here in Israel even uh, there is a ge- geographical issue sometimes that that explains these tensions also of course big cities will go uh, mostly with uh, Macron and uh, but you can see the maps that have been done in France uh, with the results of Of every vote and you can see the north and east are much more for Marine Le Pen and the west is uh, much more in the center for uh, Emmanuel Macron but of course people that live uh, far away from cities that have to take their car every day for hours to go and buy baguette or bring the kids to school and go to work school in this in the town has closed and uh, there is almost no doctor to take care of them they really feel that they do not exist for the French political system and that explains also what Elinor said really rightly that the populists have been so strong and And Emmanuel Macron in 2017, when he was elected, you know, he went to the Louvre. That was his first uh, big speech to the French nation. And he said that he would do everything he can so no one would ever have a reason again to vote for the extremes. Hmm. And here you are, five years later, and the extremes are so strong in France. So he failed on this one, and now he has to give answers. Mm-hmm. But everything that's going to happen in the next two weeks, and it's going to be the campaign you didn't see for the last six months, because... It didn't campaign now it's the money time it's the money time what Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron are gonna try to do for the next two weeks is to convince the French people that they are the right men or women to mm-hmm. improve their life their daily life to bring money home and be able to live comfortably or at least not to struggle every day when you talk to friends family in France what do you hear from them that their concerns fears and If there is any hope then hopes related to this election Elnor first to you and then I'll ask the same to Emmanuel so I went back to Paris last year and um, as a journalist I had I, I talked with a lot to a lot of uh, of French people not, not only France France but also journalists people from all over France and something very interesting is that the far right today is not the far right we knew years ago five years ago when you heard about Marine Le Pen and her party you sort of far-right extremist politicians completely disconnected from the reality of of the young and now thanks to Eric Zemmour or because of Eric Zemmour um, they have reached a younger audience how uh, you you might have heard of C news the uh, we call it the French Fox News it's a, a relatively new news channel that uh, Eric Zemmour used to debate a lot and it They have given stage to Eric Zemmour and to his ideas. And not only that, also a lot of a lot more of social media networks that have reached out to a younger audience. They have developed Instagram, TikTok, and they, they, they knew how to use these codes and how to engage a younger audience. And that's what changed. I think the far right today in France has win a a cultural battle more than a political one and that's why you see I think even Eric Zemmour even though his score um, is quite bad he did seven seven and a half yes. seven. yeah so it's way less than wha- what we expected but the fact that he democratized the far right has actually helped Marine Le Pen and Marine Le Pen concurrently has softened her image because you could hear Eric Zemmour in his very provocative stance on immigration even on the Jewish people a lot of, of Jewish are 
infuriated with what he said about the Maréchal Pétain, about uh, France during uh, World War II. But Marine Le Pen, compared to Zemmour, is almost a mainstream candidate. And that, that's how she became a realistic option for a lot of French people. This is so true. I think Marine Le Pen, and I, I don't know if she did, but she should actually send flowers to Eric Zemmour right now. She's been telling during the campaign that she regrets that he joined the campaign, that she's saying that he took his electorate, and if he 7% didn't vote for him, so they would have voted for her, she would be higher than Emmanuel Macron. But I think actually it's not true. I think he did a very good service to her because he... He did for her what she's trying to do for herself for more than 10 years, and he's changing her image, getting as far as possible as her dad's image, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and showing that she's not far right. She's a normal right. She even says during interviews now, I'm not right and I'm not left. I'm the candidate of the interest of the French people. And she didn't have to talk about Islam, immigration, and fear, because she could only talk about money, the cost of living, improving the lives of the French people. He did the job for her. He talked immigration. And now all of the 7% of Eric Zemmour, 80 to 90% of them will vote for her. So she has his votes. She's okay on this stand. And she didn't change. That's a very interesting observation. A and when you talk now to friends, family, as we are approaching the second, what are you hearing from them? What are their concerns? What, what, what are their fears? Uh, I assume some of it may be related to what we just discussed. Yeah, so this is very interesting because, you know, I have Jewish and non-Jewish friends, but my family is all Jewish. And I never actually met personally somebody close to me, a friend or family member that votes Marine Le Pen, this is far right, this is taboo. Yeah. Her father is a Holocaust denier that had been uh, indicted uh, in France uh, because of what he said about the Holocaust. So I never met somebody who told me proudly, I vote Marine Le Pen. I do know a lot of Jewish people that tell me, I voted for Eric Zemmour's first round, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. Not all of everybody I know voted Eric Zemmour, thank God, yeah, but... That's a big change. You say, in your in your change. environment to suddenly meet people who say that they voted for the far right candidate. Why did they do that, Jewish people? They, the people that voted for Eric Zemmour, are people that do fear immigration, is uh, Muslim immigration in France, and do feel that Emmanuel Macron is not giving them the answer. But I have to say that what I hear most right now during the two rounds of votes are people telling that we have to stop the far right in France, that we have to give our votes to Emmanuel Macron because the liberal democracy is in danger and this is the most important thing for them. This is not going to be enough for Emmanuel Macron, though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This time, the how do we say in Hebrew, the Gewald? That's Yiddish, actually, right? <laughs> Gewald is a... But, but I don't know, I'm Sparadi, so... <laughs> <laughs> so... Screaming, you know... God help us, yes. the far right, that's not going to be enough this time. It's, it's, it's only going to work for a part of the voters, the um, ex-socialists or the one on the left that are still very close to uh, democratic uh, values, but it's not enough. Third of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon voters are going to vote for Marie Le Pen, a yeah. third for Emmanuel Macron, and a third is probably just not going to go to vote. And Emmanuel Macron is going to have to convince the French people that He's also their president and he's the one that can actually make their everyday life better. 
Do you personally know people who are not going to vote in the second round? I actually do. And I did speak with people who have voted Mélenchon for a uh, first round. And that's the same sense of discontent and of, uh, and of anger that I was uh, talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and I asked them, so who are you going to vote for the second term? And some of them are actually going to vote for Marine Le Pen. Mm-hmm. Part of them are not going to vote at all because they, they don't even want to pick part in the political... Do, do they view Macron and Le Pen as the same? This no. Is this the, the issue? No, they don't view Macron and Le Pen as the same, but they're fed up of the traditional uh, political call for voting Macron uh, to boycott Le Pen. And they think Macron is not going to listen to them. As you said, he's the president of the rich, of the entrepreneurs, of the, the business owners, and not the president of the uh, middle French class. Some of them want to to show the discontent by voting for Marine mm-hmm. Le Pen and by saying to Macron, you're not going, going to represent us and I, and I won't give my voice to, to Macron. When uh, Trump was running in the US in 2016, the first time, and there was this phenomenon of people who supported Bernie Sanders and then either voted Trump or didn't vote, or who either voted Trump or did not vote, it was called the fuck you vote, right? Mm-hmm. Basically yeah. sending that kind of message to Hillary Clinton, to Washington. This is what we're seeing right now in some parts of the French left. So I know people that voted Eric Zemmour first round, Jewish people. And still, they should be voting right now Marine Le Pen, right? Because on immigration, as we say, this, which is the only subject of Eric mm-hmm. Zemmour. Mm-hmm. Eric Zemmour is, was only running on, on Islam, fear and immigration. Mm-hmm. So if you voted Eric Zemmour, you should be voting Marine Le Pen because she's standing exactly at the same place on these issues. But they are Jewish and voting Marine Le Pen is a big taboo. So are they going to vote Marine Le Pen but not tell me? That could mm-hmm. be. Or maybe they're going to stay home. Maybe they're going to s- vote Emmanuel Macron because Marine Le Pen still, it sounds so difficult, difficult to, for di- to digest. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I also know somebody who is um, he's also Jewish, he's around 60, and he's, um, voting, he was voting Mélenchon first round because he really wanted a debate of ideas between Mélenchon and Macron for a second round. But I told all, him that... All about the economy and what should be the... The, the ideas mm-hmm. for the country and mm-hmm. Europe. And I told him, but you know it's not going to happen. I mean, I mean, the polls show you that it's not going to happen. Mélenchon is not going to be second round. But he really, really, really was hoping it would happen. And actually, Mélenchon gave a very good score. I mean, more than 20%. He was, he was not 22. that far. He was not that far. Exactly. And what is this person going to do now? He's not voting. Wow. Because he's convinced that a shock for France, five years of Marine Le Pen far right, that's going to give the time for the left, the uh-huh. classical mm-hmm. left, to rebuild. And he's somebody who was voting socialist for years and years, right? Mm-hmm. He was one of the child of François Mitterrand. Mm-hmm. Of course, I look at it his- historically doesn't always end up that way, right? The, the communist slogan from the 30s in Germany after Hitler asked did not exactly work as uh, advertised. Exactly. Uh, Eleonore, you, you mentioned the issue of young people trending more to the far right. I mm-hmm. saw some polling that actually indicated that many, many young people in France had Le Pen as their first choice. Um, and do you think in the second round, Macron needs to work hard? What can he do to maybe improve among the youth vote, if at all? I'm afraid for Macron, it might be a little bit too late uh, to attract a younger audience. And for Marine Le Pen as well, because even though the far right, as, as I said, did attract a younger audience, 
it was mostly for Eric Zemmour. So I'm not sure all of the voters of Eric Zemmour are actually going to give their vote to uh, Marine Le Pen. But I have to say something about the Jewish vote. I also heard a lot of Jewish people who actually think of voting for Marine Le Pen as a second tour. But the Jewish organizations in France have mm -hmm. called many times to boycott the, the far right, Marine Le Pen, Eric Zemmour. They've been really trying to convince the Jewish people that it's not the right option. They didn't say for who to vote, but just not for the far right. And I think there is a sense for a lot of them that... The far right is still aligned with anti-Semitic values. Even Eric Zemmour, even though he's Jewish, he's, uh, how do you call it, the self-hatred Jew. Like he has been saying terrible things about the victims of the Toulouse attacks and the Holocaust. So I, I don't think the Jewish vote will go to the far right. Uh, regarding Marine Le Pen, she is going to enjoy the wave of discontent that has been hitting Emmanuel Macron for sure. So... Part of the voters of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, as I said, are going to vote for her. The Republican and the Socialist Party have called their voters to give their vote to Emmanuel Macron, but they represent even less than 13%. I, I, I saw today, by the way, that Sarkozy, Sarkozy also... Yes. Is, yes. Does, does this mean anything? But who cares yeah, it does. about Sarkozy today? No, it does, actually, okay. I think I Let's disagree. See. Yeah, but Sarkozy and the Republican Party are the same. So they're the same voters. Yes, but it, I think Sarkozy's voice was actually important because Valérie Pécresse, the leader, she yeah. said that she would vote Macron. She didn't actually ask her voters to vote Macron. And then Éric Ciotti, who mm -hmm. was also was challenging her in the primaries to be the leader of the Republican Party, he uh, said that he wouldn't vote Macron. Mm. So even this very small, not only 5% party, uh, Republican, like the, the sons of Charles de Gaulle, they didn't agree uh, together to vote Macron. The interesting Ca thing is, is that on the one hand, Eleanor, you said, you know, there's such a small party. On the other hand, if the polling really shows such a close race, maybe at the end of the day, even like an endorsement that's worth 1% exactly. could make mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> I wanted to join Eleanor on the, on the Jewish uh, vote. And uh, she's, she's really on point because there is no Jewish vote. The same as there is no Muslim vote in France. So when I'm talking about people that I know that vote Eric Zemmour, I can really guess that, and I don't know how Jewish people vote in France, unless the Jewish people I know, mm -hmm. but I can really assume this is really a small part because at the end it's only 7% and most of its voters are not Jewish. Mm -hmm. So this is very important to emphasize. And um, about the young, because it's a very big issue. I mean, one of the numbers in this election is the number of people that didn't vote. Yes. Since 2002, it's the highest number. It's, uh, I think, around 23%. So who are these people that stay home instead of going to vote every five years? Uh, mainly workers, mm -hmm. the working class, which is most of Marine Le Pen voters and young people. And young people, maybe Marine Le Pen was appealing to them this time, but mostly the polls show that they are Jean-Luc Mélenchon voters. And he convinced them to come this time. And that was uh, one of the, the reasons of his success. And there is also this part of uh, young people that are very active socially, that they have a cause, you know, like, like the environment. And they're really into it, but they don't feel that politics are the answer to their action. They feel that they are giving to the society in their own way and they do not need this old politic class to lead them and, and, and they do not need to contribute to the election day. So you're very right when you say that Emmanuel Macron still is leading in every poll and he should be winning this election. 
But he knows that it's not a done deal. Mm -hmm. And he also knows that he has to say it's not a done deal. Mm -hmm. Because in 2017, he was so sure of himself. And this image that we talked about, disconnected, cold, uh, pretentious, uh, snooty, he's trying to break that. So the first thing he said after the result of the election is that this is not a done deal. I'm going to work to convince you because he knows that if he appears too sure of himself, mm -hmm. he's going to go back to the thing that actually the people not voting for him are um, criticizing him for. Interesting. So we do come back then to the Gewalt uh, in, in a way, uh, in, a different, in a different way. Eleanor, you wrote this interesting article for us about where the candidates stand on Israel and Iran. Um, now we're only down, down to two. Uh, in the article, I think you had five or six from the mm -hmm. first round. Uh, looking at Macron and Le Pen, what would the election of each one mean for the French relationship with Israel and for French policy in the Middle East? Yeah, so in the article, I interviewed uh, Daniel Sheik, former Israeli ambassador to France. And he was telling me that there are actually no fundamental uh, differences between the candidates regarding Iran and Israel. We said that Marine Le Pen comes from a very anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, uh, racist family, but she has been doing tremendous work in order to distance herself from her father and to soften her image also within the Jewish community. Has she completely succeeded? I don't think so. But today she was interviewed a few weeks ago in Jewish French Channel, and she was telling that she's the candidate who is go going to defend Jewish people and to protect them. Another friend of, of mine living in France told me, I don't need protection. I don't need protection from her. I just, I need other things that she's not capable of and, giving and, me. And when she does this effort to connect to Jewish voters, does Israel play a role in it? Does she say, I support Israel, I will... Uh... She does say that, but like any other candidate, she does say that she supports uh, Israel's right to defend itself. She said that she believes in a two-state solution, like Emmanuel Macron, like, like anyone else. There's no fundamental changes, but she does try to uh, be perceived as a legitimate candidate in Israel. And she has been uh, requested uh, the Israeli government to be invited and to receive an official invitation. They never granted her so far that be request. Because of the legacy of her party, yes. so far she's, well, it will be an interesting question if she becomes president, what Israel will do they then. They won't have a choice then. But despite all her efforts, she's still perceived as the descendant of very strong anti-Semitic Uh, families and, and ties. And I don't think the Jewish community, as Emmanuel said, there's no Jewish vote, but I don't think uh, the Jewish community is ready to forgive her for that. And as for Emmanuel Macron, interestingly, the position of France has been quite strict on Iran, even more than the US, except uh, for under the Trump's presidency. So, so under his leadership, France, we have seen this as taking a little more critical approach toward Iran. It's yeah. true. But, but, but you wrote in the article that According to most experts, at the end of the day, if a deal is signed and he's in office, he will he go will along. Yes. He'll go along with the U.S. And it's not like Israel can now count on France, no matter if it's Macron or Le Pen, to somehow derail this uh, agreement. No, he. I think it was maybe just a show of force to 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 Macron has really been trying these past years to impose himself on the international scene as a real leader, as a real statesman, and I think his demands ha have been in a way trying to show that he's stronger than the other countries. But at the end of the day, he's not going to demand anything that will endanger a nuclear deal with Iran. 
עמנואל, so now we are counting the days uh, until uh, April 24. What do you think could still be a big difference maker in this election? What could still perhaps change the game in the time that's left? So there are really two things to look after. The first is the campaign on the ground that is starting and happening uh, really hours only after the first uh, round results. Emmanuel Macron went to a city where majority voted for Marine Le Pen. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to see that uh, he changed his stance on pensions. Now you have to understand. Between the first round and the second round. <laughs> it's like you have to understand, like in, in, in the course of two weeks, two weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, his big new idea for his next mandate was to change the age of Of, uh, of retirement from 62 to 65 and that made him lose some left uh, voters but also workers and uh, he went to the city and he told people like the first day after the the result of the first round he said I'm not completely strict on the idea <laughs> we can talk about it if I have to uh, we'll have a referendum and referendum is the word of Marine Le Pen so I think we have to see the campaign on the ground what they're gonna say what how far they're ready to go to uh, to win the electors is there going to be a debate with exactly you oh, this that's is the, the second, second the mm-hmm. second point when is it? So we don't know yet, oh. uh, but it's going to be very soon now. There is going to be a TV debate between Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. And this can change everything because 2017, the debate between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen was a catastrophe for Marine Le Pen. This is actually a traumatic event that she's working on for the last five years. She was unprepared on the economic questions. And she's trying, as we say, to be the president of... Of the French economy of the worker class of uh, the cost of living and then she came unprepared she couldn't answer the questions Emmanuel Macron let's just remember he's he was the Minister of Economy under François Hollande he worked for the Rothschild Bank so he knows the and, subject and, and, and Macron's image to someone who is not French does not speak the language is this someone who's very you know textbook ready always he, does his homework can can get out the numbers in in that kind of situation mm-hmm. and and impress I don't know in so, terms of managing it but impressing people that he knows it seems like one of his qualities I met Emmanuel Macron when he was the Minister of economy actually in Israel in 2015 he came uh, here for the a tech event called the DLD in Tel Aviv and it was one of the first thing you would uh, you would see about him and How hard is working and learning a new subject to be able to convince the public that he's meeting the day after or the hour after and he's really 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 well backed so his team he's made of experts it's a machine. On every subject yes and Marine Le Pen French journalists will tell you that around her the experts are not as uh, many in numbers but also in quality mm-hmm. so the big question is how prepared she will be for this debate and And to this, we have to say that she's been preparing for five years. Mm-hmm. She knows this is her moment mm-hmm. and she cannot, cannot, cannot crash as last time. Mm-hmm. Do you think the issue of Ukraine and her past statements on Putin, where she seemed like uh, quite an uh, admirer of the Russian uh, tyrant, uh, will make a difference in the last two weeks or people don't care about foreign policy and it's all about economics? So her voters don't care about that, but he, she and Emmanuel Macron made the Ukraine war as a French matter, explaining that prices are going to go higher and... Uh, that's why uh, we have to uh, talk about it but Emmanuel Macron will of course during the debate 
remind everybody the ties she has in Russia. One of them is that Marine Le Pen owns millions of uh, dollars to a Russian bank that is owned by uh, people that used to be uh, close to uh, Putin or the Russian army. Mm -hmm. And he's going to remind her that and he's going to remind her ties. I'm not sure this is going to convince Marine's base. They don't care. But, but maybe voters on the, on the fence. Exactly. Yeah, I just want to add something quickly. So you mentioned Marine Le Pen's campaign and her Russian funds, but there's also been Hungarian funds. And uh, we have to remember that Marine Le Pen was the one of the first European leaders to congratulate Victor Urban on his uh, victory. So when you see Marine Le Pen trying to soften her image and uh, appear as maybe not as populist as we used to see her, her campaign friends say the opposite. Mm-hmm. Interesting and important to note. Emmanuel Baz Phelps and Eleanor Vey, thank you so much for joining us for this fascinating conversation. And we invite the listeners to keep following your podcast and your writing on Haaretz to get more information about this. Maybe we'll meet by the end of the month for another discussion. We'll see what happens there. Thank you so much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Amir, for having us. After the break, what Israel's political crisis has to do with eating bread in hospitals during Passover. Last week, Israelis woke up to a political bombshell after a member of Knesset from the ruling coalition, Edith Silman, a member of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's party, announced that she was leaving the coalition and the reason, according to her, was a letter that Israel's health minister, Nitzan Horowitz, sent to the country's hospital directors in which he reminded them of a Supreme Court decision that states the hospitals must allow patients to bring bread into the premises during the Passover holiday when many observant Jews do not eat bread and other wheat products. Is the Israeli government actually going to fall apart because of bringing pita into a hospital to discuss this very strange political crisis and its implications in a, more widely on religion and state in Israel? We have a guest in the studio today, Uri Kedar, the executive director of uh, Israel Chofshit, an organization that promotes liberal policies in Israel. Hi, Uri. Hi, Amir. How are you? Um, I'm a bit uh, perplexed, it's like many people still, that uh, this is the political crisis we are uh, seeing. I have to say, personally, I don't think the real reason Edith Silman left the coalition is the chametz crisis, as we call it. Chametz is the religious term for bread uh, and other wheat-based uh, products uh, during that week of Passover. Um, but if we give her the benefit of the doubt that this is the real reason why she left the coalition and not some other political uh, maneuvers and, uh, and calculations, uh, try to put this in context. Why did this happen now? So I, I, w- I think it's fair to start by saying that at least one more person agrees with you that that's not the reason besides myself, um, and that's Edith Silman herself, who a day after she made that bombshell announcement actually said on the record that that's not really the reason. But the idea is that starting late in the previous decade, there has been an ongoing Supreme Court discussion that started with a change that it was really, I don't know if funny is actually the word, but it, it was sort of funny to see that even the Rabbanut couldn't have, they didn't identify when did it actually start, but that they at some point instructed the hospitals to instruct the security guards to go through people's bags when they enter 
the hospital premises. Just to give background, because I think to some of our listeners in the world, this very sentence will sound strange. Yes, in Israel, there are security guards at the entrance to every hospital. The reason for it historically is actually fear of uh, terror attacks. And then there was this new policy during Passover of telling the security guards, when you look for weapons or explosive, God forbid, in people's bags, during the week of Passover, also look to see if they have bread hidden in there. Because the hospital is kosher, the premise is supposed to be kosher for Pesach, no bread is allowed. And it's even more interesting, I think, because it wasn't even only bread, it was every single piece of food that is not a fruit or a vegetable or a sealed food item. So if you keep kosher at your house and you wanted to bring soup to your grandfather, that's also not allowed because even under those very weird ideas that a security guard will go through your bag and will look for whatever it is that you're bringing, they also understood that the security guards can't really check your kosher certificate from your house. If you bring uh, something with you that is a food item, the security guard is not uh, a rabbinate worker that can start to determine exactly. And I have to say, as someone who has spent some time in hospitals in recent uh, years, my two daughters were born over the course of the uh, two years. People in the family went through surgeries. The idea that you are not allowed, even if it's only for one week of the year to bring food, sounds to me a bit terrifying because, uh, I mean, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Right. And, and I, I think the, it's really interesting because the majority of Israelis do keep some kind of kosher, do, specifically during Passover. But still, there was, a, I think, close to 70% of the public from the, from the opinion polls that I saw that said that they do not think that the security guard should actually go through your bag. And also it needs to be said, we are not aware of even one single instance in which a Kashrut certificate from a hospital was taken away because they found out that something happened against the policy. So the hospitals began to implement this uh, search policy and then it went to the Supreme Court. Your uh, organization uh, was uh, an advisor to the court case. Right. So we, alongside with Nehmanai Torah Avoda, which is a religious organization, we brought a compromise suggestion that also got um, some support from, from the Supreme Court itself. And I think that that mainly happened because the Supreme Court did everything in its power not to rule on this case. Mm-hmm. It went, it's a very simple case, one must say, because the the actual notion or, or the policy that was under scrutiny was do security guards have the legal authority to search your bag for anything other than what you just said, explosives, guns, etc. Um, and the very simple answer that came across from the re- really first discussions was no, they mm-hmm. they do not have that authority. Thus, there needs to be some kind of another agreement, arrangement, something. And we, again, we, alongside with, with our colleagues from the Maneto Avavada, we brought a suggestion that keeps the actual food courts, kitchens, etc., kosher and other places to the situation in which you're not scrutinized by whatever it is that you're bringing. And we also said that the majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of people just get along it's just something that you do you're not trying to i have to say that was always my sense as well that in israel at the end of the day people mostly learn how to get along in these situations you know i I don't keep kosher in my house also for passover my next door neighbors do keep kosher for for passover so i will never sit out on my lawn uh, during passover and uh, eat bread uh, in front of their uh, faces and you know i have young kids they have young kids it's like just 
simple respect, but they will never even begin to think that there should be any kind of limitations on me. That they will never think I should be forbidden from sitting on my lawn and doing it. And yet I will not do it out of respect for them. And I think this is what was missing in that previous situation that was eventually fixed by the Supreme Court last year, correct? The, the, the yeah, the, the court actually before, even before Passover of last year, which is another thing that is important to understand, it wasn't a new policy for this year. So the Supreme Court actually ruled that hospitals are forbidden from following the Rabbinut's instructions and will not go through people's bags looking for food. And that happened after, again, after almost four years of discussions in which the court asked the Rabbanut again and again to bring on some kind of an arrangement, and they just refused to do that. So the, the court really had no other option but to rule. And what happened this year is that the Ministry of Health reminded in a letter to the hospitals that they are not allowed to do that, and that was the hook that M.K. Silman took in order to voice her concerns from the coalition and withdraw from her position as the coalition whip. So now looking at the situation on the ground, we are four days away from Passover when we are recording this conversation. What do you think the hospitals are going to do? So the hospitals actually, when the Supreme Court started the discussions on this case, the majority of them already said, we are not doing that again. We are not going through people's bags. And one of the things that we checked, we wanted to see if that's such a horrible thing to do, not to go through people's bags, will their kosher certificate be taken away? The answer, of course, is no, that never happened. No hospital was even mentioned in, in a framework of, we might take your kosher certificate away. So my guess is that what will happen in the hospitals is what happened in the previous years. And what also happened for decades and decades here in Israel, the, the security guard phenomena starting in the middle of the last decade, um, and this country has been around for more than that, and people were able to go to hospitals without their bags being searched, and we lived happily ever, ever after. So probably that was what we're heading in towards. Looking more broadly than just this specific disagreement, it looks like issues of religion and state keep popping up as points of tension for this very eclectic, diverse Israeli coalition that has right-wing and left-wing, secular and religious, Jewish and Arab. Um, do you think eventually it's tensions from this arena that could bring the downfall of this government? I don't think that that's actually um, the case, mainly because when the coalition started working and in the original coalition agreement, there has been a pretty broad agreement that those issues, both sides sort of enjoy a veto right. Mm -hmm. So you're at a point in which no one is actually doing anything very extreme. And the only reforms that was brought to the table so far that were important and significant were brought from the right side. From the Minister of Religious Affairs, Matan Kahana, for example. Right, who is M.K. Silman colleague in her party. So and he, there, brought, he brought the big uh, kashrut reform and there is a conversions reform under discussion now. Right, and, and, and all, but all of those discussions, sort of the, the big league discussions on religion and state issues are coming from the right, are not issues that are pushed by the left flank of, of the coalition. We're not talking yet about civil marriage. We're not talking about transubstantial Shabbat. We're not talking about the major issues that are also extremely popular in Israel. We're talking about issues that are dear to the, to more to the right side of the coalition were brought by Minister Kahana, who I think you can't really suspect him of being sort of the liberal leader of this 
coalition. Although he is an interesting figure, I think we talked about him at length in one of our previous episodes with Judy Maltz, our Jewish world correspondent, about the reforms that he's bringing about. Looking past the situation now with uh, Edith Silman, uh, do you think next year around Passover we're still going to have this fight or is this a done deal now? No, I, I think that we're going to keep on having this fight as long as conservative politicians see that as some kind of a rallying cry in which they can rally their public around. Although, again, there isn't a real public around this issue. No one really thinks that that is going to keep people who observe their kashrut laws from going to the hospitals. And also you you see, by the way, just before we enter, I saw that the chief rabbi put out a statement saying that he asks people not to bring chametz into the hospital, which by the way, I think is it's fine. Like he can ask for whatever he wants, but there's a huge difference between someone asking you to do something and a security guard that is actually in charge of your security going through your bag. I totally agree. And I think a situation in which we ask each other to respect one another is the right thing for Israel, uh, much better than trying to impose our beliefs on the other side. Uri Kedar from Israel Hofshit, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me and Chag Sameach to all the Haaretz listeners. Indeed, this is our last episode before Pesach. There will not be an episode of Haaretz weekend uh, because we have uh, the holiday this weekend. So it's a great opportunity to all of our listeners who are celebrating Pesach to say Chag Sameach Vekasher to those who keep kosher. And uh, we will meet you again next week. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.